Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing. Nehemiah 4. Chapter 1, Nehemiah gets this calling from God. It comes in the form of a burden. It's something that bothers him that Jerusalem isn't finished yet. And he initiates a third wave of people coming back to rebuild the city. Chapter 2, God gives him this amazing opportunity. He dives in and everything starts to click into place. He gets everything he needs for this expedition. And chapter 3 is the list of the heroes that were each of the family units that came along and started to take on parts of the wall. Uniquely, this list in chapter three is people dedicating themselves to certain segments of the wall that's going to get rebuilt. And, and chapter four starts with, but it so happened. The word but being a contrary to what we just read. What we just read in chapter three was the walls got built. And everybody did their thing. And there was unity of spirit. And that's the good side of the coin. The bad side of the coin is, but it so happened that there was resistance to all of this. The work of God got completed, and Nehemiah tells us that in chapter 3, but it got completed through trials. And I don't, if, if you're doing any kind of work for the kingdom of God, knowing the nature of these trials and what it looks like to be in spiritual battle. We use this phrase a lot, spiritual warfare. And some people don't like the image of warfare in battle, but it's not the warfare of armies on a field shooting at each other. But there are ways in which the spirits, the enemies, the, the, um, the enemies that are not flesh and blood, but powers and principalities, there's ways that they do battle. And Nehemiah gives us, I think the bulk of the book of Nehemiah gives us this inside perspective of from the earthly realm, what it looks like for these pitched battles to go back and forth. At the beginning of this book, chapter three, we know that the work got done and everything got accomplished. But verse one, he wants us to know that that didn't happen without trial. There was struggle in this process. But it so happened when Sanballat heard that they were rebuilding the wall, that he was furious and very indignant and mocked the Jews. And he spoke before his brethren in the army of Samaria and said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they fortify themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they complete it in a day? Will they revive the stones from the heaps of rubbish, stones that are burned? Now Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and he said, whatever they build, even a fox goes up on it and it'll break down their stone wall. Sanballat and Tobiah were introduced to us in chapter 2. In chapter 2 verse 10, it says they were first disturbed. It just bothered them that people wanted to rebuild the city or rebuild the work of God. And then in verse 19, they laughed and they despised what this was. And those were the first two steps. Those are the kind of, there's a, there's a progressive level of hatred that starts to build. And it starts just with that they're bothered with the fact that people want to protect God's temple and build walls around it, which give a protection and a guardianship over it. And then they start to laugh at and despise God's people doing this work. And so we're going to see here that they get, the words are furious and very indignant. So everything short of action they start to dehumanize the Jews. 
it's hard to be indignant or furious at people unless you think less of them and that they don't have the right to be building up their city. And the idea that Sambalat heard that they were rebuilding the wall, he's not actually located there. He just hears about it. Verse 2 says he's up in Samaria. He's not even there. But it bothers him that God's people are trying to build God's thing. What, what difference does it make to him if they're doing this? You would think that Samaria would be happy to have a strong city on their southern border that's not aggressive. Because that provides a level of defense even for Samaria against southern empires or th- southern nations. But instead, he's furious and indignant. Notice what he does. First, he starts, he speaks before his brethren, which is the act of a coward. He doesn't go up to Nehemiah and express his frustrations. He starts gossiping. And he starts talking to other people in the room about how horrible Nehemiah is and these, these Jews. And the mockery comes in. They call the Jews feeble. And here's the problem with a lot of this. It's partially true. We saw the numbers with Nehemiah are pretty small. They are feeble. There, there's a truth to these insults that make them hurt even worse. It's not, what they're saying isn't untrue. And so you meet people, they'll walk into a, a fellowship environment, and they'll immediately pick out the things that are wrong with it. And it's like, well, yeah, that's true. Those are things that are wrong with our fellowship. So come on over and help us fix them. But instead of doing that, they'll start talking to people and criticizing. And that's what these Sanballat and and Tobias kind of epitomize this idea of just the stage of mockery and, and criticism that isn't building anything and doesn't help with anything. So the criticism, what will they sacrifice? They mock their practices. The practice of sacrifice is something they don't agree with it, they don't do it, they don't understand it, so they make fun of it. Will they complete it in a day? They're mocking their attitude. Boy, you guys are working, remember they were working diligently in Ezra? You guys are, you're, you're working earnestly and with joy and with happiness, and we saw that in chapter 3, but they're saying, what do you think you're going to complete it in a day? Why are you working so hard? And I think one thing for believers is, even if we're working for a secular boss, we, I hope we go in and we give that job everything we have. We give our bosses more than what they pay us for. And you go into your work with an earnestness and a diligence, and you'll find people that will mock that. Why are you working so hard? You're making us all look bad. You know, just take it easy and don't dive into your work so much. Will they revive the stones? Part of this is you're trying to build something that failed in the past, so why are you trying to do it now? The answer is because God told them, but it's true. It is rubbish. Remember that in chapter 2, Nehemiah was a little discouraged when he got there and the whole place was a mess? It is in ruins. The stones were burnt by the Babylonians. There's a little bit of truth in the criticism. The problem is that it's in, they're not sincerely seeking the will of God. They're insincerely, insincere. They're discouraging people without sincerity. So I don't have to try to say that word. Part of the challenge of the faith is to sort out the difference between honest and sincere people that are seeking God and people that are insincere not seeking God. And the way we treat those two groups of people are very different. You can have honest, sincere seekers that are kind of messy. And they come in and they don't quite know the social norms. They, they cause division. There's problems. They're messy. But they're sincerely seeking out the kingdom of God. And those people, we draw them in and we love them like family. But you also have people like Sanballat and, and Tobias. They're, they have no sincerity whatsoever. All they have coming out of their mouth is discouragement. Well, Nehemiah is going to treat them very differently. And so you get this idea, and again, 
especially non-Bible readers, will throw out this idea that, well, God is love, which means we're walking mats and we accept at anything that people do. Yet, biblically speaking, there are different types of people, and you respond to people in different ways, which happen to have something to do with reason and discernment and wisdom. Uh, the fox breaking down their walls. The idea of a fox is that they walk very lightly. They, they'll steal your eggs right in front of your face, but you won't hear them do it until the chickens get upset. And, and again, there's some truth to this. They're mocking the, the quality and the craftsmanship of the wall. Again, take a look at photos. How, how many of you looked at the photos of the broad wall last week? And yes, it's laughably childlike. They're looking at the craftsmanship going, you guys, a fox could walk on that thing and knock it over. That's horrible craftsmanship. And so there's a little truth in it. But again, they're missing the point that they're doing it because God told them to do it. And all these things that get us down, I'm not good enough to build a proper wall that a fox can walk on. I, I, I'm feeble. I, my, I don't get why we do some of these things in the kingdom because they don't seem to make a lot of sense. Prayer, worship, fellowship. Why are those things so important? Working earnestly and diligently. And, and the people go after the attitude of a Christian. And all of these kinds of things, the Bible paints these as evil. They're the enemy. They're the resistance to the work of God. Again, not guns and cannons but attitudes and hearts and spirits coming into conflict with one another. Joy versus discontentment. Peace versus misery. Anxiety versus, versus uh, contentment. And these things come into conflict all the time. And when Christians define their lives by holiness, non-Christians will begin to have these reactions to that holiness, especially if you do it with a joyful spirit. And you're doing everything you do with, with that sense of love and and enthusiasm, you become God's proxy on earth. And there are spirits that are against those things, which continues to baffle me. Why would somebody be upset if somebody joyfully comes to work and does their, and sings while they move boxes on a line or something? And there's just people that that joy just bothers them. Purity, Sabbath, tithe, fellowship, worship, prayer, Bible study itself. I love Bible study. And people will say, you are a nut. Why do you love that so much? The church itself, being excited about what you do with your fellowship, none of this belongs to us. This is the mistake they make. He says the fox will break down their stone wall. That's what they don't understand. It's not their stone wall. It's God's stone wall. We're building because God told us to. God provided the resources. God's instructed us, and we're happy to serve the Lord. That's why we build churches. That's why we have people over for dinner. That's why we go skiing together when there's snow. That's why we do these things, because we love these people. And we're committing our life to being and living life with other people. And we build each other up. We don't tear each other down. And that culture, that habit seems so foreign to some people. But it's not our wall. What we're building, we're doing because God gave us that spirit of love for one another. God gave us the instruction to do these things. He's created the blueprint. We are like an unclean thing. All our righteousness is like filthy rags, Isaiah 64, 6. That's us. But if we do anything good in this world, we do it because God called us to do it. We will fade like a leaf as our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. Woe to the critics of God's work, especially when they criticize something God has commanded, like building churches, building fellowships. Why are you so religious? That's the disturbed. Why are you judging me with fairy tales? That's a form of scorn. Why is... Why did people gather other people to be critics, to mock the holier-than-thou Christians? That's indignancy. 
All of these things we're seeing in Nehemiah. When they, have so, when they care so much about what other people think, they can't imagine that Christians don't care what they think. And it bothers them. So before the work of God, the believer has to understand this. And you have to understand it so that you can ignore it. Because that's exactly how Nehemiah responds to these kinds of things. In this level of, of spiritual warfare, Nehemiah simply ignores them. And doesn't listen to them. And that's really hard when you care about what people think about you and it bothers you, the tendency were, were you, for you to take that flame of early belief and let that flame die out instead of letting it burn bright. But if you let it burn bright, you're going to run into people that can't stand it. These things I've spoken to you that you might have peace, that you might be settled. Uh, uh, John 16, In the world you'll have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. It's not our life. We've given it to God. And in that sense, the one response to this, when God's work is being mocked, we hand that fight over to God because it's not ours to fight. Nehemiah records no debate, no argument, no interaction with these people. The only thing that he does, without even a transition between verse 3 and verse 4, no transition whatsoever, he just prays. Hear, O God, for we are despised. Turn their reproach on their own heads and give them as plunder to a land of captivity. Do not cover their iniquity and do not let their sin be blotted out from before you. For they've provoked you to anger before the builders. This is not your typical Bible prayer. He's actually praying that they're handed over to God. God, let the righteousness come upon them as they deserve. And you'd say, shouldn't Shouldn't a godly person always be praying for the benefit of people? And that becomes, again, Nehemiah, Ezra, these history books are applications of the law and how we as believers respond to different groups of people. And these people hate God's work, and, and he's not treating them, he's not treating these hostile people as potential followers. He is handing them over to God. And if you think about it, that, that's, if God's a merciful and a good God and he wants to convert these people to join the building crew, they're welcome to come join the building crew. But Nehemiah is not going to work about it. And especially when these things kind of hurt and these insults have a grain of truth in them, to know that God hears, verse 4, hear, O God. All he's saying is, Lord, can you hear what they're saying? Can you listen to this? And I think that gives us a level of peace when we can say that our God hears the insults that get thrown at us, we can hand that over. Nehemiah prays throughout the entire book of Nehemiah. We've seen uh, chapter two was, or chapter one was a big prayer, right? And here we see another prayer just popping out in the moment, instantly. And all of this prayer echoes promises in the law. Sinners do have a reproach. There is an iniquity that goes with it. Um, give them as plunder to a land of captivity. When Israel doesn't obey God's law, they're given over to captivity. So he's praying that these things happen to them. Remember, Israel going into captivity led for them to repent. And Nehemiah is part of that repenting group that learned from that experience. He's Having God fight our battles for us becomes a release valve. When you're butting heads with people this hard to just let go of the fight actually benefits you more than anything else. It's the fight that causes the anxiety. It's the battle that causes us to lose our peace before God. And one solution to that is to say, God, I'm giving this whole thing over to you. And, and in turn, I'm going to go back to work and do the things you asked me to do. If we pray what we would like to see happen, 
and it's what we want to see happen, not what God wants to see happen, we're out of touch with God. So when you have folks that are, uh, that are actually, and it, and it says, he points this out you, let their sin be blotted out from before you. They're not sinning against me, they're sinning against you because I'm your proxy doing your work. And to understand that relationship is actually a huge blessing for believers. I don't have to respond to mockery with anger. I can respond to mockery with love because I know God's going to give them whatever they deserve. And, and for some people, if you've felt that kind of frustration with another human being, to let that go and have that sense of forgiveness just wash over you, it's not my battle to fight. Will God correct every injustice? We're promised that he will, and we're promised that in the law. So Nehemiah is simply speaking God's will back to God, that there are iniquities and God will address every single one of them. And he's wanting God to hear this and record it so that he can let it go. And again, the covering there that he's talking about is, is the same word used for the covering of the altar in blood, which is when they gave a sin offering, would cover that blood would cover and lead to forgiveness for that person. So he's praying, don't let that happen with these people because of this. David prays this way too. Uh, David prays prays that God will deal with enemies as enemies should be handled. And in this, David can continue to move forward in love. So not just because of David's embarrassment, David is then not embarrassed by what his enemies do. He prays for their shame. Psalm 40, 15, let them be confounded because of their shame. Those who say to me, aha, aha. It's one of, I just love that. I've actually met people that go, aha, aha. You know, that catch you in that phrase they, they were going to try to get you to say. They've provoked you. These kinds of prayers allow believers to stay on mission. When we can let it go and let God be the judge, we don't have to be the judge. It takes a lot of pressure off of us. Frankly, if we're doing God's work, we don't have time to hate people. I don't want to bother with to do that. Not only that, we don't have permission to hate people. God doesn't give us that right. So in assuming the right to judge people, we're not only not doing our calling, but we're actually offending God in our own way by thinking that we know better than God how to deal with other people. And some of those people, God is going to turn their heart back to the kingdom. And some of those people will not. They'll receive judgment for what they've done. It's not our fight. Thus says the Lord to you, in case there's any doubt, 2 Chronicles 20, 15. Do not be afraid or dismayed because of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Again, core belief. We don't get angry. We just give it to God and let God do that. Step two, he prays. Step one. Step two, he keeps building on. Continue on, my friend. Tarry forth. They just march forward and keep doing what they're doing. The mockery is against God's will to build. They pray and then they build. It doesn't stop them a bit. Verse six, so and so here being in reference to the prayer, so we built the wall and the entire wall was joined together up to half its height for the people had a mind to work. Here's the beautiful part about doing God's work. At the beginning, it's super fun. It's like a honeymoon at a new job. This new job's the best thing in the world. It's awesome. It's great. I love going to work every day. But then something happens. It's a job all of a sudden. And it's a grind, and it's a work, and there's a different kind of discouragement that's part of the spiritual battle. Starting a project is really exciting. Finishing a project often just takes a grind. And that's exactly, so the wall gets to half its height. I think 
there's a principle here. It's generally about halfway through the project where things are, oh, this is just going to be a lot more work than I want to do. The words can't hurt them. That They keep building, and they're just like past the trowel, and they just keep putting blocks on. The enemy can't really do it, but the enemy of our own spirits working against us, we go from a mind to work to being a little discouraged in the work, that's a different kind of spiritual battle. So this isn't the end of the challenges. They increase the closer they get to being finished. So the further on you get in doing God's work, building a church, getting involved, doing ministry, blessing someone, discipling someone, the further you get into it, the, the further along the enemy's going to start escalating too. So they have a mind to work. The way Nehemiah presents that is a mind to work is a gift from God. A heart that desires to do the things of God is an absolute blessing. If we appreciate and love what God's doing and we want to contribute to it, that's the Holy Spirit guiding us and moving in a a direction. The excitement for God's house is simply greater than whatever the world thinks of it. Then, don't miss, we want to see the attack stop, but in this case... It's God's will to not only allow the attacks to continue, but they're going to increase. So a lot of times we pray against spiritual battle like, Lord, please resolve this. Please end it. But for God's people, sometimes he allows the battle to continue because it shapes us. And it's good for us to do things even under resistance. In fact, that's the whole principle of weightlifting. If you want to build muscles, you have to provide resistance to those muscles. And God's trying to draw his people into faith in the Holy Land as he's returning them from Babylon. And resistance is part of the faith building. So if you're a Christian and you feel like you're constantly under trial, my question is, what must God be planning for you? The answer to trial and resistance is that we change, we resolve, and we grow in our faith when we persist and continue on. Nothing of this world will stop us in what we've been called to do for the kingdom. We're always on the lookout for new ideas. We're always ready for other workers to join the work with us. We have a heart that's faithful in doing it, and we've resolved to do it. And that's really important when you're halfway there and the honeymoon has wore off. We're resolved to do this. Now it happened, verse 7, when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites heard that the walls of Jerusalem were being restored and the gaps were beginning to be closed, they became, and here we go to another escalation, very angry. And all of them conspired together to come and attack Jerusalem and create confusion. So they were disturbed, then they were scorned, then they were indignant, now they're very angry. And there's open hostility. Note that the group expands. It's not just Sanballat and Tobiah from Samaria. Now they've got other groups they've, they've drawn in to conspire against the people of God. If we unify for God, why would we be surprised when the enemy unifies against God? Of course they're going to gather more troops. This is why they gossip. And they, we unify around joyful building and fellowship. They unify around getting in the way of that. Some folks hate sin and love life. Other people hate life and love sin. And that there's, the Bible has these two groups of people with an open translation. When people repent, they can join the other group or vice versa. The gaps were beginning. The cause of anger is well-defined and it's continuous in how this works. It's progressive. The usual paths to attack God's people weren't working. 
so the enemy escalates to something that might work. If sticks and stones won't hurt my bones, maybe we should start throwing, or if, wait, sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Have you ever heard that? So the words weren't working, and the enemy thinks maybe it's time to get out the sticks and stones. And we, we start doing, we really start, we have to stop these people. Again, I don't know why they need to stop the rebuilding of Jerusalem. But there's actual healing, actual growth, actual unity, actual progress. All of these good things simply increase the rage of the enemy. It just builds on it. If you never see an enemy angry at your joy, the enemy likely does not see you as a threat because you're not building much. And that, to me, is really convicting. If I never run into these situations, it is likely the case that I'm never putting myself out there building the kingdom of God. If, however, you do build the things of God in your workplace, in your home, with your family, you will find people that don't like these things. Because the way you do marriage, the way you do life, is an antithesis of what they think you should be doing with your marriage and your life. And they're happy to tell you how they think you should run your life. The world will often give those things. But when they see it doesn't work to tell you what to do, then oftentimes they get frustrated and indignant and angry. And they conspire. When we see the conspiring of otherwise disparate factions, we know the attacks are coming. Critics don't build, they don't encourage, and they don't matter, but they can hurt. And when they start getting ready to attack Jerusalem, this is serious. And prayer and continuing building is not the response of Christians in these situations. So should God's people let it happen? Should they just wait to get attacked? Um, They're not soldiers, by the way. They're farmers. They're herders. They're goldsmiths. They're perfumers. We know that from past chapters. These are not people that know how to fight. They're not trained soldiers. So what do they do to defend themselves? And then the other thing, attack Jerusalem would seem to be the worst but it's in sequentially, it's second to creating confusion at the end of verse 8. The main goal here is to create confusion. Why do they want a unified, godly people doing a work for God to be confused? Because the work will stop. And they'll cause this to happen. Increasing rage, fear, and confusion, this is the response to an organized, unified people of God. And this is the enemy's toolbox. We see that increased work means increased threat. But I want to point out the reason Nehemiah is writing this is because it also results in increased faith. This dynamic actually helps is the way in which God builds up the people of God. Nevertheless, verse 9, nevertheless, we made our prayer to God and because of them, we set a watch against them day and night. So what's the response to the, the words? Prayer and they keep building. What's the response to threat of attack? Prayer And they set a watch. They're not going to be foolish and just let the people come and and kill them. So God's people don't attack. They don't argue or fight them. But they do pray again, and they set the watch. So praying without action seems to be foolish on our part. Oh, Lord, fix all these problems, but I don't want to change anything about how I do anything. I just need God to do everything. They don't do it that way. They pray and then they set a watch. They do actually set up some basic practical defenses of the work that they're doing because they have legitimate concern for what's going to happen. This is why we have ushers. 
right? We have people that watch the doors. And we, we know that these things can happen. Thankfully, in America, these are extremely rare. But just last week, another church got, somebody walked into the church and started massacring people. And so we see this happening there. And, and, and what they do is they don't just become victims. They set up a watch and something to protect the people of God while they're doing God's work. They do battle spiritually through prayer, and they do battle practically by taking reasonable defense. This is practical. They're using reason to battle what would be the emotive response to people are threatening to attack me, I should be afraid. But instead of being afraid, they just set up a guard. Instead of praying and doing nothing, they pray and take sensible precautions. Think about this in our life and how we do things. When we fight sin, we pray for God to deal with the sin, but then we make sensible changes to our life. If you have a particular sin that keeps coming back again and again and again, maybe get rid of the instruments of that sin. Take, the, take your calendar and rearrange it so if you can see a pattern on when that sin's happening, you actually change your calendar so you, take, you make practical defenses against that sin. You set a watch. Get an accountability partner. Have somebody that you can talk to and confess to on a regular basis so they can keep tabs on you and check in on you every so often. How are things going with that sin? And then here they set a watch against them day and night. Here's the other piece. We're told, too, to pray without ceasing. And setting a watch or a guard is to put that no gaps in the wall, no gaps in the schedule. The guard goes up, it goes up day and night, it's, it's tireless, and it's inspired. As much as starting a project with this great enthusiasm and excitement, taking practical precautions to make sure the work gets done, even though we think the enemy might attack, also completely reasonable and godly to do that. Verse 10, then Judah said, remember Judah's one of the tribes, one of the larger ones? The strength of the laborers is failing, and there's so much rubbish that we're not able to build the wall. Again, now we have discouragement coming from inside the work crew. This is another way the enemy attacks. If he can't get you from outside, he's going to get you from inside. If you can't discourage God's work from, the, from people you know and in your life, he'll bring discouragement right to the people of God inside the work. So part of this is true. Again, the mix of truth and lie. Part of this is true. They are, they, they, are, they are failing, which means to get tired or to wear out. As a laborer doing stonework all day is exhausting work. And sometimes the ministry gets that way too. You have weeks where it's just you're tired and you're wore out. We tend to take a lot of holidays and to keep our faith. They're not able to do that. So it's true. And, and there's f much rubbish around. So that's true, too. There's a lot of rubble around from when the city was destroyed. But the lie part of this is that they're not able to build the wall. That's not, just not true. They're, these are excuses that Judah brings up. They're not solutions. What's the obvious solution to tons of rubble being in the way? Move the rubble. Get the rubble out of it. Before you can build up, you got to take care of the foundation and make sure the workplace is good to go. They're failing because they're about at this halfway point where the work is now tough and hard. The, the thrill has gone out of it. The flesh wants to quit, throw in the towel, give in. 2 Corinthians 12, 9, but my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. It's when you get to that point that you have to go to God and pray for the strength to finish. Because we all hit that point. So much rubbish, years of neglect over this city and God's work here. 
there's garbage all over the place and evil loves garbage. It loves to hide in the places. And that's exactly what they're thinking is all this rubbish makes good places to hide for the enemy. Cockroaches love this too. If you find cockroaches, they're usually hiding in dark spots. The way to make them run around and skitter is to shine a light on them. Clear the rubbish out of the way. In the church, we have rubbish all over the place. Bad theology, religious traditions, sin itself, expectations, or this is the way we always used to do it. It's all rubbish. Clear that stuff out. The rubbish isn't a reason to stop, and it's definitely not a reason to say, I, we can't do this anymore. It, it stops God's work because of a lie that comes into our head. Because there's problems, we can't do this. Good road clues clear out the rubbish. In fact, Isaiah 57, 14, one shall say, heap it up, heap it up. Prepare the way and take the stumbling block out of the way for my people. Garbage in the church needs clearing. If it's something that isn't helping God's purpose, maybe it doesn't need to stick around. If it's a way that things used to get done and we had some joy back in the second temple period, maybe God's bringing on, or the first temple period, maybe God's trying to build a new temple. So before building up the wall, they have to get this foundation cleared. They have to make the way. And this kind of work is not fun and it's not glorious. All their neighboring wall sections are going up. And they're, they're not growing. They're not getting bigger. But they have work to do at this level before they're going to start to progress and build a glorious wall. And frankly, you know, maybe Judah's wall doesn't look like the, the broad wall does. Judah's part of the team but they're not wanting to do the necessary grunt, glorious, less work, glorious work that has to get done. Notice that there's nothing between 10 and 11. Nehemiah just points this out. And Judah, we know from the last chapter, actually finished their section. So we don't get the story behind this, but Nehemiah apparently dealt with this discouragement because Judah does finish their section and they get it done. Verse 11. And our adversaries said, back to this group of people, they will neither know or see anything till we come into their midst and kill them and cause the work to cease. Ah, ha, ha. They won't even see it coming. And, verse 11 starts with and. This goes hand in hand with Judah's discouragement and concern. Perhaps they're concerned because of all this rubbish that there's easy ways to sneak up on them. So they're gonna, there's a threat to be killed, and it coincides with we can't. The enemy's strategic too. To think the enemy is clueless in how to attack God's people is foolish. They will neither know, they're not going to listen, and, and this is part of it, they will neither know or see anything. These godly people don't listen to us, therefore we're going to end them. This is evil at its core. And it manifests itself throughout history in a variety of different ways, but it's the same heart. It's an accusation. Because you won't listen to our morality, our theology, the way we see the world, our atheism, because you simply won't hear it. And it doesn't, and, and, and frankly, there's a lie there. I think Christians are really good at hearing it, like listening to it, studying it. Uh, in fact, I, I would encourage you to study and learn those different theories. But when you come to the conclusion that it's inaccurate, the way they hear that is you won't listen. But what it actually is, is we just don't agree. And we don't agree that these things aren't true. So listening to God and, and our adversaries apparently means that they, they think that they're not being heard. Or we're going to sneak up on them and we won't know, they won't know what's hitting us. Either way, it's still kind of a sick heart to want to blindside God's people. So they start in the last chapter disturbed 
and, in, and scorned in chapter 2. In this chapter, they're indignant. They get very angry. They're conspiring, and now they're blindsiding to kill God's people. I pray none of us see this level of enemy attack. But historically, the, the enemy has risen up to that point, and they have gotten there. The only difference between wanting to kill God's people and the ability to actually kill God's people is who has, who's in charge of that country or, or people group. Who's in authority and who has the power to do that? So to kill them is the final escalation point from the world's perspective. This did happen with Jesus, martyrs. They can and they will kill people. When the Catholic Church was first founded, they killed thousands of people that would not recite the Nicene Creed and agree with the Catholic principles. And a lot of those people they killed were people that were Jesus followers that simply didn't want to be part of a universal church. And so 1 Peter 5.8, be sober be vigilant because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking who they can devour. And it's the same heart with the adversaries here. They're looking for opportunities and they're going to strike when they're not expected. It also forces God's people. And again, on all these, I love the flip side of it. Think of what this does to a Christian. It drives us to a faith that goes night and day, persistent all the time. You want to pray without ceasing? Have an enemy that's ready to attack at any opening they can find. And it drives Christians to a higher faith. And God allows, I think, not that God's doing evil, but he, he lets this happen because he realizes better than we do, it's going to strengthen the resolve of the believer to continue on in God's work. We're going to continue on even when it's not fun. If the enemy can discourage, they don't need to do this. If they can corrupt or scare believers into stopping the work, they don't have to do it. But at the end of the day, when Christians are resolved to their work, killing becomes the final option. We're going to have to just end these people. So, and again, the goal here is for, really, for the work to cease. Any sin, any evil, any idol, anything but the work to continue. Anything but a strong and healthy group of godly people on the earth. That's what the enemy is all about. So it's not Yahweh, it's not Jesus, it's not security in the house of God. None of those things are acceptable. They don't want a defendable faith. They want a weak faith. And so it was, verse 12, when the Jews who dwelt near them came, they told us 10 times, from wherever place you turn, they will be upon us. Again, verse 12, this is the fear. It's a plague. They're going to get you whenever you leave an opening. So you can't sleep at night. You're anxious all the time. You're worried all the time. What's going to happen next becomes the attitude of the believer. And we're told to be strong and courageous. So when they're trying to devise something that's contrary to the will of God, it says the Jews who dwelt near them. You could read this two ways. One, the Jews are part of spreading this fear by talking about it. Another way to read it, which is perfectly viable, I think, is they, Nehemiah actually had Jews living amongst these different people groups, bringing information back so he wasn't unaware of what the world was doing. And this is why some of us read the news. We kind of want to know what's happening out in the world and not be oblivious to it. So either way, it's good to have some ear to the ground at some level. It's also something to be thinking about the degree to which we spread worry by spreading all the bad things that are happening out there. And I hope you've seen me model this sometimes, not the bad part, but the when people want to get overly worked up about the news, 
that there's a degree to which, yeah, I want to know what's happening in the world, but I hope, I hope you've seen me model going, so what's going on in your life? What's God, what kind of work are you doing in, in Christ? So why are we concerned about something that happened way over there when we have work to do here? We have neighbors to talk to and co-workers to share the gospel with, family members that are lost. What are we doing in those relationships before we get concerned about what's happening in other places where they don't like believers? Nehemiah doesn't panic. I think that's one of the responses to this. He doesn't, react, he doesn't overreact to it. They're going to try to kill you. And he hears 10 different reports. They're going to come and kill you. They're going to get you when you're not looking. Therefore, verse 13, this is because of that problem, I positioned men behind the lower parts of the wall at the openings. And I set the people according to their families with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked, I arose, and I said to the nobles, to the leaders, and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, great and awesome, and fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, your houses. What does Nehemiah do? He refocuses God's people on the local obligations and responsibilities they have. Tend to your family. Tend to your parents. Tend to your kids. Tend to your, your, your spouse. And make sure those things are protected and guarded, spiritually speaking. Nehemiah adds more reasonable precautions to reasonable threats. And he balances it out with what God's people should do. We try moderate solutions to this extremity that the world's going to throw at us. So that means not stopping the work. Also, he doesn't do nothing either. He doesn't panic, and he doesn't blame, and he doesn't get all worked up, and he doesn't spread fear. He instead spreads the opposite. Remember the Lord, great and awesome. Remember who we work for. The world thinks this is wrong. We're not worried about what the world thinks. Remember why we're doing it. It's purposeful. And then he organizes them according to their families. I love this. He, he simply has the workers bring weapons to the work site. And the weapons, you know, this is a natural instinct that he's using. God has given us a concern and a care for our families. It's holy. It's a good thing that we care for our families. We love these people. And, and basically the work of God happens according to the families using a natural instinct to equip and guard our family. So you're not going to just fight, and you're not fighting for Israel. You're not fighting for Nehemiah. You're going to fight for your wives, your daughters, and your houses. Fight for you. And again, part of why we fight the spiritual war and get into spiritual warfare is because we love the Lord God Almighty. But God also knows part of, why, part of why we're in spiritual warfare is because it benefits our family. It's good for us. It's a blessing to live a righteous and a godly life. And what a blessing it is. Again, he talks about swords, spears, and bows. In the Old Testament, we're talking about a physical manifestation of a spiritual principle. Spiritually, this looks to me like putting on the armor. And if we don't battle against flesh and blood, and we're told in the New Testament we don't, then what do we battle against? And right after the whole flesh and blood thing comes this verse in Ephesians 6, 14. You guys know these verses. I know you do. Nehemiah, it says, Ephesians 6, 14, stand therefore. Remember Nehemiah rose? He arose is the word. Having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. We're actually told what the sword of the spirit is. It's the word of God. 
18, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit, being watchful. Remember Nehemiah arose and then he looked. Arise and look. And to this end with all perseverance and supplication for the saints and for me that utterance may be given to me that I might open my mouth boldly and make known the mystery of the gospel. Nehemiah arose. Nehemiah looked. Nehemiah spoke. Verse 20 of Ephesians, for which I am an ambassador in chains that I might speak boldly as I ought to speak. All the tools we see in Nehemiah are helped to shape the New Testament. And the strategies haven't changed. They stay the same. The only difference is instead of a physical threat of battle, we have a, a, a spiritual threat of battle that comes before what we do. All of these tools are used in protecting our families, our churches, and the people we spend our life with. Verse 14, and I looked and arose and spoke. Same strategies. Have your eyes open. Be willing to take a stand. And again, the whole goal here is that utterance is given to me. Knows what to say in the right moment. Open my mouth boldly so that we speak not with manipulations. We don't speak as, as with guile. We don't speak trying to manipulate or twist people's minds. We just speak boldly. We know what we know. Also note that he doesn't speak to the enemies of God. Nehemiah turns and speaks to the people of God. When the enemy attacks from without, God's people start to talk to one another. And we start to share those things with each other. Hey, there's these concerns out there, but we're going to remember what God said and why we're here. And do that. Do not be afraid of them is the message he gives. I, at some point I need to go back and count how many times in the Old Testament we're told not to fear. Do not fear. It's over and over and over. We just keep seeing that. That is the will of God in our life is that fear becomes the opposite of faith. And we fear the things we worship, the things we give our attention to. And when we, the threat of losing them happens, we're, our fear becomes our cripple. It's an idle act. If we love and adore and worship our safety, then we fear any loss of that safety. If we love people more than God, then we fear losing those people. You worship what you fear. And we're told throughout the Bible to fear God and God alone. The only thing we should be fearful of is losing God and losing our relationship with God. Moses, Deuteronomy 20, he's basically Nehemiah is quoting Moses when he tells the people what Moses told their, those people. Moses tells them this as they're going to go into the promised land. Nehemiah tells them the same things right before they start rebuilding this temple. Remember the Lord, great and awesome. Know who he is, have your perspective right, and fight for your brethren. Defend your family, your homes, guard what you have. All of this is consecrated under God. It's a godly mandate. I don't know what God's called me to. Love on your family. Why is that complex? Well, that's hard and it takes time and I have other things to do with my day. No, but that's what God's asked you to do. Take care of your family. There's a beginning to that. Other things, I mean, the criminal on the cross, we talked about this this morning, like he didn't do anything and he got into the kingdom of God. So if you have any lifetime after you've accepted Christ, one of the main mandates we see in the Bible is take care of the people around you. Love on your family. Verse 15, right alongside that, and it happened. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had brought their plot to nothing, that all of us returned to the wall and everyone to his work. So the, the enemy basically finds out that Israel's aware of them coming and that they're bringing weapons to the work site. 
so it was from that time on that half of my servants worked at construction while the other half held the spears and the shields and the bows and wore armor. And the leaders were behind all the house of Judah. Apparently, the attack never comes. So they would have been fearful for nothing. And it was the practical precautions they took that made it so the enemy just didn't see an opportunity to strike. And when God establishes a thing, there's nothing on this earth that can come against that. So in the end, their fear was warranted, but in making practical precautions, prayer spiritually, and physical actually arming people, the attack actually never occurs. And this is, they see God's people living. And I think spiritually speaking, this is true too. The enemy can't attack you if whenever it comes near you, you're worshiping the Lord, praying to the Lord, fellowshipping with other believers, or studying the Bible. Those are not good opportunities to attack you. And I know when I'm studying the Bible, like it's one moment in my day when I'm not sinning or struggling with sin. And so when you're filling your life with truth, righteousness, peace, faith, salvation, the spirit and the word of God, the enemy just doesn't have a chance to come at you. There's no openings. And in that sense, they can't win a battle. Why would they fight it? The, the, Satan is not omnipresent and all powerful. He has to strategically attack where he can. Why would he waste effort on you if whenever he comes into your home, there's worship music being played? doesn't make any sense for him. He can't win those battles. Even if they got to Israel and killed a few people, it also wouldn't stop the work. And notice what they noticed at the end of verse 15. Everyone to his work. When God's people are about the business of building what God has told us to build, the, the enemy just doesn't, not only does they not have opportunity, but they can see that we're doing these things and they haven't discouraged us. The whole threat of attack was to stop the work. And when they see the work keeps going, they don't have the opportunity. The name of the Lord is a strong tower and the righteous run into it and they're safe and they continue the work. From that time on, verse 15, from that time on, just because the attack goes, the threat of attack goes away doesn't mean they don't maintain the precautions. And it, what a blessing to go through life and not have this major spiritual battles in your life. God bless you. He must love you more than me. What a wonderful thing. I, I wouldn't, I think that's a wonderful testimony Someone who just faithfully keeps up their defenses and they don't really fight a lot of battles. And they just do God's work for decades. We do have this idea of staying on the watchtower even when the attacks aren't imminent. And this idea of being in the word, being in, in peace, righteousness, maintaining our hope, remembering our salvation, living in the spirit, reading the word of God. What a beautiful way to go through life. And there's no knock on that. So that from that time on, they stay vigilant. Isaiah 21.8, then he cried, a lion, my Lord, I stand continually on the watchtower in the daytime, and I've sat at my post every night, day and night. So he just follows that pattern. Victory isn't beating the enemy physically for us, and it's, but it is to not be deterred by them. I don't need to beat up on bad guys. All I need to do is continue to be a good guy. And I win these kinds of battles, everyone to their work. They could have quit. Judah wanted to quit. They said they couldn't anymore. And apparently they got over that weird little thing because they did. Even though they felt like they couldn't, they continued to do it. Their reasonableness conquered their emotions and they won. We don't have to win victories against evil. That battle's already been won. All we need to do is continue persisting in what God's given us, 
Evil's just a trial that builds our faith. But there's no stopping the building of God's work. It, it even told Peter, like, th there's this rock that you're going to start building a church and the gates of hell can't prevent it, prevail against it. There's nothing that stops God's people. Jesus has already won the war. We simply need to move forward undeterred, unstopped, unrelenting. We need to continue the work and do it in our lives. Behind, behind all the house of Judah, this is an interesting thing in verse 10. They do all of this behind the house of Judah. I'm sorry, verse 16. That was the house that was discouraged and for the whole group to get behind them, you get one discouraged family or group in your church and for the rest of the church to come behind them, to support them, to help lift them up, this is part of how God's people thrive and succeed. Judah's not alone in the work they think they can't do. And this is part of, this is the answer to that problem that Judah had is verse 16. They all, everybody just gets behind them and helps them out and helps to defend them while they're weak. Verse 17, those who built on the wall and those who carried burdens loaded themselves so that with one hand they worked at construction and with the other they held a weapon. Every one of the builders had his sword girded at his side as he built. Trowel in one hand, spear in the other. The word for sword, their weapon at the end of 17, it means a spear. And the one who sounded the trumpet was beside me. You got the word of God, we're told, is the, is the weapon that we have. The word of God, it's the only weapon we have. And then we have the truth at our girdle. And so the sword being girdled at the side, you got the word of God and you got the girdle of truth. Those are the two things we just keep with us all the time. We never let them go. Even when we're working, even when we're tired, even when we're discouraged. Notice the distinctions of work. There's people who build, there's people who carry burdens, and then there's all of them that work. This is all God's work, even though they have different jobs within the kingdom. Same thing's true in the church. You have people that build things and lead ministries and do stuff. We have other people that come to church and they're just burdened. They have other things on their mind. We don't judge one another. We come behind one another when that happens. We back each other up. We have God's word when the battle comes. We're ready for it. If it comes, that is our primary focus is to build up and to defend. 1 Peter 3.15, we're ready to give a defense whenever we have to. But the whole point is to create a church that's unafraid of this world and the panic that this world can foster. And this, we just persist. Verse 19, then I said to the nobles, the rulers, and the rest of the people, the leaders, the rich people, and everybody else, I said to everybody, the work is great and extensive, and we are separated far from one another on the wall. Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there, our God will fight for us. All right, so here's the other thing. They don't have cell phones, so they, but they do set up a communication network. They talk to one another. So yes, they're working by family units on the wall, but the spot that they're working, there might be you know, 500 meters between that spot and the next family working on the wall. There's spaces. And the church works the same way. We have different families of churches, but we also talk to one another and we have conversations. So most churches are in denominations where there is a network connecting those churches in the denomination. The pastors talk to each other, call each other, go to conferences together so that some people are building, other people carry burdens, and we're always ready to blow a trumpet and ask for help when we need it. If the enemy starts to come after a group, we come and support that group. In the Calvary Network, we had uh, people that, they had a, a county in California that went after the churches that opened, and the county is still attacking those churches two years later. 
And so they, those churches have this burden where they need help. Well, all they did is put a note up on the pastor's listserv saying, hey, do any of you guys got lawyers in your churches that can help us out with this? And they just connected people with those kinds of things. You have missions work where they have needs and resources that they need. And as they blow a trumpet and we say, well, we'll send you a motor scooter if that's what you need. How can we help? And what can we do? Or, oh my goodness, you guys are meeting for church in a foot deep of water. We'll send you some cinder block and workers and we'll help build up that part of the wall. So he says to the nobles and the rest of the people, the work is great. He puts their focus on what they're doing. What we're doing is special. It's beautiful it's an, and it's important. And that it's extensive. What we're doing is bigger than any one family. It's bigger than any one person. And so finally, Nehemiah sets up a network, this communication thread, and they blow trumpets and they have trumpet things um, and they rally together. Verse 21. So we labored in the work and half the men held the spears from daybreak until the stars appeared. And at the same time, I also said to the people, let each man and his servant stay at night in Jerusalem that they might be on guard by day and a working party on guard by night and a working party by day. They work day and night without ceasing. They're just persisting in it. This is after the walls are half built. Then you get into a rhythm. Habits make work happen. No great work happens without a healthy discipline and habit of doing that work persistently every day. So you want to take on something huge, you have to put time in on it. So verse 21, this idea that they labored, the idea here is that this is how they got the work done. At some point, it's not just fun and games, it's just work. But because they know the importance of the work, they persist through that grind part of things. Meaning they were ready to do all these things. So in this, they build a boundary. They build a wall. If there were strangers, they could come into the temple, but they had to come into the temple through the gate because the gaps have been closed out. You don't get to come into God's presence any way you want to or from any direction you want to. There's one way. Jesus announces, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He says, I'm the, I'm the door. And you have to get to God through me. So the wall is as important as the temple when it comes to imagery and what it means. As they've always been doing things, they continue to do things. They have evil all around, but as a people of God, they're united. They continue, they persist, and they, are, they cease to be defined on what other people say about them. This makes the Jewish people, for the first time in the Old Testament, distinct and set apart from the people around them. And under Nehemiah, they finally get to this point where their actions are God's will, not what they need to do in every other thing. Even David had battles that they were fighting that they didn't have to fight. We get all the judges ultimately sin in how they do it. Nehemiah does things according to God's word. And, and there's no conflict in doing that. Ephesians 2.19, Thou therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God. That's the mission for us as a church too, to be together in the household of God. So the enemy has tools and we have tools. And I want to just run through the chapter and, and, and then we'll do that last verse, which I just think is funny. The enemy has these tools. They get disturbed. They laugh and despise. In our chapter today, verse 1, they get indignant. Verse 7, they conspire. They get very angry, verse 7. Now they blindside to kill. And God's people have a response to each of these things. If they're disturbed, Nehemiah shows that we can ignore them, keep planning the work, and be inspired by God. 
If they laugh and despise us, Nehemiah says that we get to define who we are under God's image, not what other people think of us. And, and we're going to continue to close the gaps. When they get indignant and vocal, Nehemiah's response is prayer. Prayer for any one of these things. And he hands it over to God. God, you got to deal with this. When they're very angry and conspiring to kill, he prays and encourages the people to not get weary. And then verse 10, they clean out the rubbish. They have plans to blindside and kill, verse 11. And Nehemiah prays again and takes reasonable precautions against what the threat is. Look, arise, speak, verse 13, is what Nehemiah does in response to that. And then at that point, there's no more enemy tools listed, though there is one more tool we'll get to. But the tools of God just way outnumber the tools of the enemy. Because all they have at this point is the threat of killing. That's where we're up to. And, and Nehemiah's response is just keep ticking along. They're not going to be fearful. They're going to remember the Lord. They're going to fight to protect. Verse 14, they're going to be in the word and stick to the work. Verse 15 and 16, they're going to work and they're going to keep building. Verse 17, they're going to carry loads, figuratively or literally. And verse 17, they're going to be staying vigilant in all of these things. Like the things that we have for this spiritual warfare far outnumber what the enemy has. These are all tools. So the enemy here is just outmatched and they don't have further ability to escalate because they simply don't have control of God's people at this point. Our weapons of war are far outmatching the enemy's weapons of war. This is why we don't have to be afraid. And again, everything God's given us to do spiritual battle absolutely defies the enemy at every step if we stick to the plan and respond like Nehemiah does to these things. When in power, however, we will see in the New Testament, sometimes the enemy actually does kill. The enemy killed John the Baptist. The enemy killed the prophets. The enemy actually does end up killing Jesus's carnal body. And then we get Stephen the martyr, the first of thousands. The enemy does actually kill Christians now and then. And again, I pray none of us have to worry about this. But killing, however, again, it can stop the individual, but it doesn't stop the work. That's the problem the enemy has. He can't stop God's work because God's work is voluntary and killing us is only killing the flesh. And the spirit just moves on. I like the, 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 uh, un, the song by the, the, what's the song with the workmen? Unspoken sings it. Bury the workman. Great song. You can bury the workman, but you can't stop the work. Because God's work goes on regardless of the individual. For me, by the way, to live is Christ and to die is an upgrade. Like this is the this is the thing where even this the final measure that the enemy has really isn't something we have to worry about that much. Okay, if you kill me, I'm with my maker. So just in case. They stay connected, they rally, they got the trumpets, verse 20, and they go day and night, verse 22. They just go further and harder than they ever did before. God allows the trials to happen, and God's people just continue to get stronger under those trials. The full armor of God works, truth, righteousness, peace, faith, salvation, in the spirit and the word of God, Ephesians 6, all of these things become tools for us in spiritual battle. And the work goes on diligently and prospers in their hands, Ezra 5.8. That's the goal. Just keep going. Luke 12.35, be dressed and ready for service and keep your lamps burning, which means you're going in the night sometimes too. Here we are, the lights are out outside, we're still doing Bible study. We persist day and night. 
This is how we wage war. We don't start fights. We don't pick fights. But we can fight. And we have tools of battle, too. We're just not going to use the world's tools. We're going to do it our way. And this is how we build a place for God's family, a place of truth, a place of love, and a place of hope, and a place of peace, and a place that persists and does not recognize the tools of the enemy. We continue. And then the last verse of the chapter. So neither I, my brethren, my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me took off our clothes. Well, thank goodness they didn't do this. None of them got naked on the job. Except that everyone took them off for washing. Just, just a note, they did take a bath. Only a guy would say this kind of thing. I just, I read this and I just am like, oh, I am reading a history book written by a real human being. The end of this chapter, the end of his point here, so is used in verse 23. So we went day and night, we were going, we're going, and he's so proud of the fact that God's people are just rocking it. And he's like, we went so hard, we didn't even take our clothes off. (laughs) So apparently if you're lazy, you take it off. Spiritually speaking, this fits perfectly. You never take off the armor of God. You wear it all the time. So the continuing, I love that with Nehemiah, neither I, my brethren, my servants, nor the men of the guard, notice that it still starts with him. And this is the heart of a leader. He's going to do, he's going to never take his clothes off. Neither I nor we all kept it going. Nehemiah is not above the workers. He's one of the workers. He's a brother. He's not in charge. God's in charge. He's just a cupbearer. That's where he came from. And so he continues to bear the cup, to bear the burden of others. Nehemiah works harder. He starts earlier. He uses the example of himself for other people to follow. I like leaders like this. I follow people who work harder than I do. And they're further along in life than I am because I have something to gain from following that person. Nehemiah is that kind of leader. And then finally, yeah, but we do wash our clothes. Like the whole point of this as a body of God's people is there is a degree to where we don't stink for the world around us. And I think this is a weird thing. As the church weakens, we get weirdos. Have you ever noticed that? And the world loves looking at the stinky people. Look at these freaks that we call Christians, these, these feeble Jews. Look at these people. And, but this idea of that, the, except everybody took off the, their clothes for washing. Like, so he's talking, we never took off our clothes, clearly figuratively, and he takes away those literal people and the bad joke that you can make from that. We did take baths. Like, uh, that's not the point he's trying to make. I love this. We wash our clothes. We take a bath now and then. So obviously the workers went day and night, they went hard, but they did take baths. And there is a breathing moment for these people. Um, 1 Corinthians 15, 58, we'll end on this. My beloved brethren, the brothers and sisters who I love, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And take a bath. And that's where we'll end tonight. Dear Lord, we thank you for Nehemiah, his leadership. We thank you for giving us a historical look at what it looks like when God's people operate. Thank you, Lord, that you gave us this example even before Jesus. And when Jesus paints a picture of the kingdom of God, it's a picture that matches. And so we love to see God's people united, doing your work, um, not openly hostile as the world is, but openly loving and supporting and encouraging each other. So, Lord, help them and help us, help God's people. Lord, help me 
to be someone who persists day and night, unmovable, non-stopping, steadfast in the work of the kingdom. Lord, help us when we're discouraged. And I know that the enemy loves to discourage believers, but Lord, that's not when we quit. That's when we double down. And Lord, help us to bear our, each other's burdens when we do have discouragement. Help us to come in and support and love and help that person build their wall too. And Lord, we just pray that you help us to be a people of God that act like the people of God. And in doing that, nothing stops that. There's nothing on this earth that can resist God's people united and serving you. So Lord, help us to see the needs around us, to bless the body of believers we're associated with, and to be a blessing to the people around us. In Jesus' name, amen.